Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Hey, uh, welcome to the podcast. Hey, classic introduction with my good friend Joe, aka Jim Doman, and uh, here we are, Boulder, Colorado. Here we are, Jim. I'm uh, I'm astonished and, and uh, excited to share about uh, some podcast uh, stuff on Facebook. Yeah. So before we get into it here, I want to just talk for a second. We got uh, a lot of great people. Megan Hollowell, my new or Holloway Hollowell from uh, uh, Little Rock, Little Rock, Arkansas, my new Facebook friend. Oh, cool. Thankful for that. But we got a, just a lot of good pod, or, uh, mentions. So I just want to like uh, mention a few of them here. This is from a guy named Nathan Goble. Oh. Do you know him? Yeah. Goble wanted to clarify something, so I'm just going to read this real quick. FYI, just because every photo of my currently post- posted of me is not either of some religious ceremony, some snow ritual, or some religious snow ritual, doesn't mean that I'm totally lame, right? Question mark. There he has some doubts. We will not answer that right now. P.S. The uh photo with the mustache, those stains were from medicine I was on. Police. What kind of medicine? That's my question. What kind of medicine? So, (laughs) Houston Daniel's been posting. Thanks, buddy, for your words. Uh, Eric Jordan, a good friend of Kevin Burnett, our old friend Kevin Burnett at the college. Oh, yeah. Or the spirituality year. No, Mm -hmm. no longer at the college seminary. But Eric Jordan, thanks for posting. But my favorite post, my friend, is from Preston Earl. Do you know why that's my favorite post? Uh, Does he compliment you on your hair or something? He does not compliment me on my hair, but uh, several podcasts ago, I don't know which one it was. I think, I don't know if I, I was with Father Mike. It was on St. Michael. And I thought we were doing a sound check. So I happened to be singing oh, no. Business Time by Flight of the Concords. Yeah, I heard that and I was like, oh, this is going to sound really bad and dirty. I could not believe that it was posted uh, by Mike, our producer. But thank God Preston <clears throat> Earl caught this right away and he said on Facebook, like the next day, I heard the last podcast and realized that the first thing Father John said was a reference to Flight in the Concord song. <laughs> it's hilarious hearing a priest sing business time. <laughs> Preston, thank you for easing my conscience. I appreciate it. business time. That's right, man. I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> That's right. I did too much. So thanks for those of you who are posting on uh, our Facebook page. Yeah, we, we've had some. We've had a lot of action on the Facebook we, page. We do read it, and we really, really enjoy your comments. And we're going to come back to it at the end. We've got a long thread from a certain subdeacon, but we'll talk about that later. Oh, that's right. Yes. But that, we'll we talk, talk about, about at the that. end. So, but to the topic, my friend. Yes. Well, first off, Enlighten us. it's always business time. So we should. Is talk... that the Economist you have in front of you? No, I, it's not the Economist. This is a uh, theological book. Oh, thank you though for you're the first thinking so highly of me. I do enjoy reading the Economist, and I know you're getting very cultured. I'm trying to, but we'll see. I was we'll actually see. reading uh, in one of my classes. We're reading uh, a bunch of different church documents. And uh, one of the ones we read recently was Presbyterorum Ordinis on the priesthood from the Vatican Second Vatican Council. Yes, really awesome document. I was I've never read the whole thing through uh, in a classroom setting, so it was really cool. And uh, but it actually says in there that priests should kind of be continue their formation theologically, so reading theology, which you do, and kind of be in touch with what's going on in the world. So right. the Economist is a great way for John to fulfill. Which is tough. It's tough to know. It's tough to do both, to be quite honest. It's tough to keep up the theological chops and the Latin and the Greek and the different things we learned, Hebrew, but Hebrews. We'll leave that for Father we'll Mike. We'll leave that for Father Mike. Um, but to keep up theologically reading and then also to stay in the world, it's a tough thing. But I, uh, I think it's important, you know? Yeah, it is important. Yeah. So I so give you props. One of the uh, girls who works at the student center with me, her name's Brianne. 
she said, oh my gosh, you're so much cooler than I thought you were because you're reading The Economist. So <laughs> I guess that makes me cooler. That's right. She doesn't actually know who I am, though. She thinks I'm even remotely cool. So that might be the first time anybody's been complimented for reading The Economist I, as, I, as really cool. That's quite possible. I'm, 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 that probably sounds really arrogant of me saying that. No, it totally does. That's great. <laughs> that, par for the course. So we uh, you know, just finished dinner here at the rectory here in Boulder, Colorado, and uh, so hopefully food coma does not set in. We used to paint... Uh, outdoors in the summer my brother and i and food coma would set in after lunch and we would just lay in the shade and we didn't want to do work so i'm oh, hoping dude. that i'm hoping that doesn't happen right now hopefully not so we're we going into let me guess von balthazar von balthazar no <clears throat> he's the the source of this podcast topic which if you clicked on it you're just a faithful listener because it's not gonna be that exciting um but anti-romanism Mm. And the Christological Constellation. I think that sounds really interesting. Thank you. The uh, The topic is was very profound for me and very interesting. When I was in Abu Dhabi over uh, Christmas, as I spoke about in uh, several podcasts ago, I had a lot of time to read, which was great. You know, sometimes you go visit the family and you think you got to do the tourist thing. But Mary and Daryl Neppel, my parents, they, uh, they came through. We just chilled on the beach and I read this whole book and uh, was blown away by it. Absolutely blown away by it. The book that I'm referring to is by Hans Urs von Balthasar, certain Swiss, Swiss theologian, cardinal of the church. You may or may not have heard of him. If you listen to these podcasts <coughs> often, you know that pretty much everything profound I've ever said comes from this guy. There you go. But he wrote a book called The Office of Peter and the Structure of the Church. And what he's dealing with is the question of primarily... We know that people hate the papacy in the world. Mm-hmm. We know that Protestants hate the papacy. People don't like the Pope. But why do Catholics hate the Pope? That's question. the question. So he says, why is there strains of what he calls anti-Romanism in the church? Rome being the center of the church. And why is there this disdain in Catholics? And we see it in the United States, but it's very acute uh, in Western Europe, uh, especially in the time when he's writing this in the 70s. Why are, are they so intensely against it? Like, why is it just this power central, mm-hmm. this hierarchy. Well, there's this, a lot of history there, too. There's a lot of complication. We talk about it a lot, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of our podcasts, we kind of come in and out of that topic. But today I want to look at it just <clears> kind of <throat> theologically and kind of give um, what Balthazar says is kind of the reason for it, and then also what's the where, where's the way forward? What's the solution? Sound good? Sounds awesome. Okay. Let's do it. So, Jim, the basic argument of Balthazar is that when we look at theologically people who hate the Pope— or have disdain for Rome, what happens is that, again, this is all theological, this is not sociological, this is theological, but what's happening is that we've separated the Pope, we've separated the Petrine office, the successors of Peter, from the rest of the church. And what happens with that is we start to think that the church is Peter, Hmm. right? Right. We start to think that, like, literally, the Catholic church is the hierarchy, Mm -hmm. and the rest of us are just... You know, well, you're just lay scum, and I'm just part of the hierarchy. I'm like a low lowling in this uh, huge managerial international hierarchical right. um, program, mm-hmm. so to speak. Like a huge pyramid structure with the Pope at the top. Exactly. P- pope at the top, us all at the bottom, including lowly priests in Boulder. And lay scum lay like scum. myself. <laughs> exactly. So that that's kind of like the general feel. And I think even amongst good Catholics, like good people that I meet, there's kind of that suspicion of like, yeah, it's just this kind of power thing and – yeah, you know, maybe Father John, if you're lucky, you'll be a bishop. And I'm just like, don't ever wish that upon me. Seriously, like mm-hmm. you know. Um, but they think that's what it looks like. It's just this huge management office, and 
if I'm successful, then I'll kind of climb the ladder and maybe someday be Pope. Which is how a lot of the world looks like when you look at the business world. I mean, that's how a lot of it can look like. Precisely. Sometimes it doesn't look very different. It doesn't. And uh, so we got to dig a little deeper. Mm -hmm. That's a problem. That's a problem. So what Balthazar says is, um, you know what? He says, in the last 200 years, we've isolated the Petrine office from the rest of the church. We've separated it, and we deal with it separately. We treat it separately, and that's part of the problem. First Vatican Council was big on papal infallibility, which was important, which was providential. But we, if we shift too much to that theologically, and we start to think the Pope is everything, the Pope just kind of makes up these rules. Whatever the Pope, he says, then it's like Pope that's tells the truth. us it comes down from the CEO of our corporation, and then all of a sudden we just have to figure out uh, how to obey that, even if we disagree with it, right? And you look at the problems of the 20th century. Uh, you know, humana vitae, contraception in the 70s is kind of a big one. It's just this kind of smackdown from Paul VI, and we have to all just kind of submit. And um, there's just kind of this suspicion that bra- that kind of creeps into the hearts of Catholics that says, this isn't just, this isn't right. And I don't want to really follow these guys. Mm-hmm. So we kind of tacitly follow them, but we don't actually with our whole hearts kind of assent right. to them. So what he argues is that the trick is to not hammer people say, listen, lace gum, submit to the CEO of the Catholic Corporation. You say, no, that's not the case. We have to reintegrate it, the Petrine office, the successors of Peter, the papacy, reintegrate it into what he calls the Christological constellation. Now, this is fantastic. Mm. I love this. Sounds delightful. I love this. Now, what does he say? And this ties into, Joe, the, a really good podcast you did several times ago on um, why I love Jesus and hate religion. Right. Why I hate the church, why I hate the hierarchy, why I hate the Pope, Mm. right? We could just kind of infer that. He doesn't say that, but uh, uh, why I hate everything that's not Jesus. The institution. The institution. What Balthazar says is that, okay, God chose to become man. That's huge. So that places him in humanity, in the world, even though he is God. And what he says is we have to shift our mentality. It's not just me and Jesus. But we have to see it as if if I'm going to engage Jesus, he's not just this one thing I can focus on, but he's this whole constellation. He's got other stars around him. And he uses the images of constellation to help us kind of just uh, theologically appropriate what we're trying to say here, which is that it's not just Jesus. Jesus is the center. He's the, the focal point. He's the star. But when we look at the whole thing, we realize, no, there's other key figures that he cannot be dealt with without. Hmm. And in the early, early, early moments of the incarnational life, so to speak, the two are Mary and John the Baptist. In the early church, in the earliest form of the church, that's what you have. You have the, the, the last great prophet of the Old Testament, uh, the forerunner of Jesus, and then you have the first great disciple. Hmm. Remember, at one point, Mary is the church. Right? At the moment of the fiat, the moment right. of the Annunciation, Mary contains in herself the perfection of the whole church. Hmm. So I that's the first thing. It's awesome. not Peter. It's not the Pope. Mm-hmm. Jesus doesn't come and um, and then, boom, pick the Pope right away. But he has Our Lady. He has a woman, right, who is the model for discipleship, who is the perfect Christian, and who in, in at one point, really for 30 years, uh, incomp- uh, encapsulates, sorry, it's a difficult word, encapsulates the entire church, appropriates the whole church to herself. It's a beautiful thing. But then he says, okay, we move 30 years forward, and all of a sudden it changes. Jesus starts to do different things. He comes into his public role. John the Baptist is martyred. Mary kind of begins to hide herself in the heart of the church. So he says this early constellation dissolves into Jesus, so to speak. John the Baptist and Mary kind of 
uh, John the Baptist dies, um, the martyrdom, and then Mary kind of hides and kind of dissolves into the into the heart of the church, which is Jesus. Mm-hmm. So now we have this constellation that is set in the public ministry of Jesus in his death and resurrection and in the early church, right? And he says, okay, so Mary has, has kind of removed herself into the heart of the church. We don't really hear about her at the end. But who do we hear about in the early church? And who are the people? Take a guess. Paul. Paul. Uh, the apostles. Peter, James. Um, yeah, that seems like... Peter, James, and John. John. You always forget about John by well, name. Which is silly. Right? he's kind of a big deal. There's something different about those three, mm-hmm. right? We see that. He takes them to different places. He, he instructs them differently. He gives them a specific role. A yeah, there's several office. times in the Gospels where it says, you know, he takes Peter, James, and John apart. Exactly. And then Paul kind of breaks into the scene in a really unique way. And Paul's an apostle because he's had a direct experience of the Lord Jesus. And he has that on his way to Damascus, as we all know the story. Mm-hmm. He falls off his horse, if we had a horse, whatever. Right? Right. Caravaggio thought he had a horse. But whatever. He is there. So we take those four men. And so what Balthazar paints for us, and the key to getting out of this kind of whole anti-Roman thing that we're dealing with now in the 21st century, is to reappropriate Peter back into the Christological constellation. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, so what is the constellation? Well, we have these four stars around Jesus, and Mary is kind of with him in the heart. I gave a homily on this uh, a couple weeks ago, and let's just say— Everybody's heads exploded. Well, yeah, some of them loved it. Some of them hated it. Our friend Becca, who was the international affairs major secretly from several weeks ago, she was like, that was horrible. (laughs) It didn't make any sense, and I was like, come on, you know? So, But that's what you get when I'm off for a month and I'm reading all the time. So Peter, James, John, and Paul are the four stars— of the constellation centered around Jesus, according to Balthazar's kind of theological framework. Now, it's important. He's not just saying this uh, because it's just a cool idea. Oh, let's just, you know, do a constellation thing. No, he's saying it because these four men express um, essential dimensions of the life of the church that are equally important. Mary is the heart of the church. Mary is everything. Mary is the center, right? I had a conversation with a girl um, who is kind of left the church and she uh, was leading a Bible study on First Timothy, and, and Paul was, like, hammering on how women shouldn't uh, dress and these different things. And I was trying to kind of lay this out for her, like, because Protestants love to take Paul and isolate him. Mm. Catholics love to take Peter and isolate him. Right. We have to reappropriate both into this constellation. All right? So what are we looking at? Okay, so imagine a constellation. You're looking up at the stars. You see the, the brightest and the most beautiful and the most profound star is Christ in the center, and Mary is hidden with him, right? Mm. It's the heart of the church. But then around him, to the left, you have St. James. To the right, you have his brother, John. To the north, to the, you know, up, you have Peter. And and to the south, to the bottom, you have Paul, a cross, right? Mm-hmm. And when I gave this homily, I talked about seeing the Southern Cross in the Southern Hemisphere. I was in Peru, hiking to Machu Picchu, and it was it was amazing. The Southern Cross is incredible. When were you in Peru? Uh, 2003. Okay, it was a while ago. Yeah, so it was like, geez, eight years ago. That's crazy. 12 years. Nine years ago, something like that. This is 2012. We're not good Just at math. in case you're wondering. We're not good at math. <laughs> We've recorded this in 2014. <clears throat> now, the, uh, um, and I looked at that Southern Cross, and I was kind of captivated by it. And so when we speak of the constellation, we're speaking of this, it's almost like the Southern Cross, so to speak. Jesus is the center, James to the left, John to the right, Peter up top, and Paul to the bottom. Now, it's important the way that Balthazar frames them, because he says, you have two tensions at work between the two, Right? So the north and the south, top and the bottom, there's a tension there. 
And um, to the left and the right, there's a tension there. But I just realized looking at my text, I just screwed that up. So oh, really? let me say that again. Yeah. <laughs> Peter to the left. John, John to the, to the right, right. James to the top. Peter or Paul, Paul to the bottom. Oh. So what are they? What do they represent for us? Well, we know Peter. Peter is the office of the church, mm-hmm. right? The pastoral office. Peter is given a specific task. His name is changed. He's given specific work. He's given the Holy Spirit in a very specific way. He's meant to be the concrete unity of the church, but he's not meant to be the church. Right. Very important. Yeah. It's a huge Mary is the church. Mary is the church. Peter is meant to be the concrete source of unity in the church. Mm. All right. The office, so to speak. You go across the constellation to the other side. James. No, John. Dang. John. <laughs> John. And Balthazar says, the love which, quote, abides. Yeah. You read the Gospel of John, and this is the contemplative uh, dimension of the church. This is the one at prayer. Mm. This is the one that's faithful to Jesus at the foot of the cross. Right. The only dimension of this is the, that's present at the foot of the cross. Right. Peter's gone. Mm-hmm. Peter's flees. And that's a very stark contrast in the Gospels. So John is present at the cross. John is the contemplative. John beholds the life of Christ. John rests on his breast at the Last Supper. And he's the great gospel writer. I mean, his gospel kind of is, exactly. is the great of the exactly. four. He's the know? great mystical contemplative dimension of the church. It's almost John. like it's almost like Peter's like the skeleton of right. the body, and John is like the lifeblood pulsing through it. I mean, like the blood in all the veins. Exactly. And Balthazar always says this great thing. He says, you know, in the morning of the resurrection... John and Peter take off to the tomb. They run to the tomb. And John gets there first because John's love is more pure Mm. and his love is more perfect and he runs faster. But John waits at the tomb. At the entrance of the tomb, he waits for Peter, for Peter to enter the office, which is slower, which wasn't there at the moment of the crucifixion. And so what you have is you have this tension in the church between Peter and John. The office and the charism, so to speak, the love of the church. And it's really interesting. Balthazar, I'm reading another book now that he, re- that he wrote. And he said, this is the crisis of the, of the modern church is to reconcile office and charism office and love, so to speak. Mm. We, ch- we have to think, ah, oh, I don't really am into this whole Peter thing. I mean, I'm not in this whole papacy authority hierarchy. I'm more into the love, you know, the con- contemplation, mm-hmm. you know. I'm just going to love Jesus. And- just going to love Jesus. Just, Jesus, I hate religion, that kind of thing. Right. That's the spirit. That's that's John separated from everything. And so what he says is that there, there's a tension there that has to be played out constantly, that John will always run faster to the tomb. John will always embrace Jesus faster. But without the office, there's no way of reintegrating that back into the unity of the church. So they hold each other in tension. John challenges Peter, the contemplative dimension of the church, challenges Peter to love Christ more authentically. Peter holds John in unity. Cool, huh? That's awesome. Beautiful. So then we go to the top and the bottom. James and... James and Paul. Paul. Okay, so what's the deal with James? James oh. becomes the bishop of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Is right. it the same James as the apostle? Yes. We James the apostle. Certain? Yes. Wow. Yes. Yep, that's pretty much for certain. He talks about it. He deals with the historical critical stuff in it. But James is the first um, bishop of Jerusalem. Once Peter goes to Rome to be crucified, he uh, kind of pretty much takes over his role, and he's a very important role in Jerusalem. James is all about tradition. He's all about law. He's all about that initial community of the Jews that Jesus evangelizes. And he's about works. And he's about works. Exactly. In his letter. Exactly, which Luther hated. Mm-hmm. Right? So you have James on top, and then you have this tension with Paul. Paul's the great... Apostle to the Gentiles. Gentiles. Exactly. But Paul was a Pharisee. 
And that's what's so fascinating is that you have this mission agentis ought to the nations, but then you have the same tension of like, but it's about the Jews. Salvation is from the Jews, as we know from the Gospel of John. So, uh, so Balthazar says, uh, tradition and law; these are the this, these are present in the early church. We can't separate ourselves from our Jewish roots. Spiritually, we're all Jews, right? That's very important, and James holds that in place. But Paul is that freedom of the Holy Spirit to go and embrace the world, to take on the Catholic universal mission, so to speak, and to embrace all nations and to bring that to the whole world. Paul is also the theological uh, expression of the church. He's the theologians, so to speak, while um, James is going to be that kind of historical, um, intensive, uh, I don't know, tradition that roots us back in the salvation history right. through the Jews. So there's always this tension between are we Jews, are we Gentiles? And, and Balthazar makes a good point. He says the first uh, trial of the church in, in how do we assimilate Gentiles into the church with Jews. Mm-hmm. He said that's the first and that's the most important. That's the greatest crisis the church has ever been through. Really? Yeah, and it's dealt with in the Council of Jerusalem. Is an Acts. What's up? In the in Acts. Exactly. Acts the Apostles. I thought you said Nax. I was like, something about Nax. Yeah, <laughs> I know what you're talking about. Mm, nothing. Yeah, so, so he says that um, James and Paul, there's this kind of profound tension within the church as well. So I tell you this because... As Catholics, we have to reappropriate an understanding of kind of where we fall in this whole thing. And Mary's at the heart. And so everything needs to converge into the center. If Peter gets isolated, then the church is going to become completely hierarchical. If John gets isolated, it's going to become completely Gnostic. It's just going to be about my contemplation, my wisdom, my understanding these things. It's going to separate me from the church. Mm. If James gets isolated... Then James is going to, it's all going to be about law and tradition and kind of Phariseeism. Right. If Paul gets isolated, it's going to be modern Protestantism, mm-hmm. which is going to be this intense theological engagement, and it's going to be all mission in the world. To give you kind of a practical understanding of why this affected me so much, I work in campus ministry, as you all know, University of Colorado. And I looked at this and I was like, oh my gosh, this is my life. You know, I said, um, James, who's James? We have this thing called the Buffalo Awakening Retreat up here. Mm. Buffalo is the mascot here at uh, CU. Buffalo Which is really Wa- common, and it's a common Right, retreat. Awakening Retreats are all over the country. I'm sure some of you who listen to this have been on them. But the Awakening Retreats are student-run. They're hardcore about tradition. They've been going on for about 10 years. And they're student-led, student-run. And um, they've had problems with priests at times because the priests want to control it. They want to change things. But they're like, this is our tradition. They're James, Right. <laughs> And then you go to the bottom, and we have this group called Focus, Fellowship of Catholic University Students. And they're hardcore mission. They're all Paul, completely Pauline. They want to be on the campus doing barehanded evangelization. They want to be bringing in people into the church. And they're frustrated with James, with B.A., Mm -hmm. because they're like, all you do is sit around and have this community. But B.A. is frustrated with Focus because they're like, all you do is go out to the world, but you never focused on community. Right. Likewise, you have John. We have these things called households here where we have com- a common life of people. And they live this hidden contemplative life. You met Krista today, Krista mm-hmm. Kyle. I don't think she listens to the podcast, but she just got a shout out. But Krista started one of the households here. And they are this contemplative kind of source to the household. And we have a staff that really works specifically with them. And then I, was, and then at this point in the homily, I was like, Peter, I guess that's just me. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> yeah. I don't really know how to say it, but other than the priesthood is the office of Peter. So for myself as a priest, I need to be the source of concrete unity within the church. But that doesn't mean I am the church. Right. Right. Yeah. Mary's the church. And I need to get BA and focus 
and the households and myself, we all need to converge and become more Marian mm. at the heart of the church, which is the fiat. Um, and that's the beautiful thing. Every heresy in the church, Balthazar argues, can be reduced to the isolation of one of these aspects of the constellation. And really one of the fundamental ones that has been a temptation uh, in, the, in the 21st century is this isolation of, P- of Peter, the office of Peter, um, which becomes estranged, becomes confused, and then looks like it's separated. Mm-hmm. But if we can convince Catholics that Mary's the heart of the church, not Peter, but Peter's essential, just like John's essential and James is essential and Paul's essential, and you're going to fall somewhere in here naturally, um, I think it'll give them a very different understanding of the the kind of beauty of the church. Yes, question. I have a question. Why do you say Mary? I mean, I mean, I don't doubt it, but why do you say Mary's the heart of the church? Like, what does that mean? You kind of explained the other four, but like, what does that mean to say Mary's the heart of the church? What is the church in its essence? Its fundamental receptivity to the act of God. Remember, we are not doing anything. The church did not create herself. Everything is received. What it means to be Catholic is to be unlimited in your readiness to receive the will of God, to receive the life of God in the sacraments. Mary expresses that perfectly. Her life is the perfect witness to complete receptivity and complete readiness to God's action in the world. Yeah. That's what the church is in her essence. It's not Peter. It's not John. It's not James. And it's not Paul. But Mary mediates those two different tensions. Which is the thing I think is really helpful for people to hear why. I mean, because we all know that Catholics... Yeah, we love the Pope, we love the saints, all these things. But we talk about Mary a lot. And that's one of the things even a lot of Catholics don't really understand. Like, what? why are we putting such a focus on this? And I think I think it's important for people to understand, and for myself to even hear this again, that, like, this is why she's at the heart, because she encaps- encapsulates what it means to be a disciple of Christ in its essence. Uh, total receptivity to his word and, and, and abiding with his word. Exactly. Uh, it's just, it's, I think that's important. You exactly. Know? And, and for the... Average person listening, you're going to fall somewhere in here. You're going to be more Petrine. You're going to be more Geronine, more Jamesish. I don't know how to pronounce it. Jacobin or Jacobinish um, or Pauline. And uh, this is just for you, Joe. Are you ready for this? Oh, thanks. Four senses of Scripture. What are they? Uh, literal. And? Historical. Oh, I'm just kidding. Uh, allegorical. Yes. Anagogical. Yes. Um, I'm missing spiritual. Well, spiritual is like well, that, all three. Trop- yeah, that, tropological. Tropological. So check this out. So Balthazar says, we we have a way of interpreting Scripture based on these four senses. This goes back to the fathers. This goes back, this is ancient. But he says, you want to interpret Scripture? If you don't have this kind of constellation present, you're never going to be able to interpret it. You're going to focus on one aspect. So here's what he says. The historical sense, the literal sense of the Scriptures, right? What they are intending, What what is the human author's intention? When we read that and we say, what does this actually mean? What is he trying to say? James. James is historical because he's rooted in tradition, he's rooted in the law, he's rooted in the Old Testament. Right. Right? But on the far side of that, Paul, the allegorical. You read the Pauline letters and you're like, this is crazy. He cites Jesus' words once, his institution at the Last Supper. He refers to one act, one thing in the moment of Jesus' life in Galatians, his, the incarnation. He's born of the virgin. That's it. It's all allegorical, the pneumatic sense, so to speak, hmm. the Christ of faith. If you separate those two, the historical and the allegorical, and like I said, this is getting kind of complicated for a second, you get in this really weird historical You might want to explain what allegorical even means. Why don't you explain what allegorical means? Allegorical? Um, it's when you basically take the historical, which is like what is what is the author of the scriptures, 
whoever's writing this, what are they actually intending to say? Right. Uh, what's the historical context in which they're saying it? Um, that's the that's the, the that's the literal text. That's historical sense. literal. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the allegorical is when you take that and you take that to just kind of be a sign, a signpost to something completely different. Right. Uh, which is, it's kind of by analogy. So I think Paul uses an example of an allegory in one of his letters where he talks about the the Jews and he talks about the new church starting. Right. And he uses this allegory and he 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 talks about um Abraham and he has Abraham has one child Ishmael by a slave. Another child by a free woman, you know. Ishmael's his slave is Hagar, and his free woman is Sarah. Um, and the the um, the one who inherits inherits the actual promise given to Abraham is the one born of the free woman. And he uses this. He's like, this is a great allegory to talk about the the Jews. You know, the the, the son who's born of the slave is the Jews, and the son who's born of the free woman is the Christians. Exactly. Um, so it's basically taking the historical thing from the Old Testament and the Pentateuch these two sons of Abraham and using it to kind of give its meaning by pointing to something completely. Exactly. Different. So it points beyond itself. It's right. allegory, mm-hmm. so to speak. There's an allegorical sense to scripture, just like there's a literal sense to scripture. And so we Paul's have to hold the one up. who's about allegory. Exactly. According to Balthazar. So, you know, you want to take this with a grain of salt? I'm okay with that. <laughs> and then he says, Peter and John, what's the tension there? The other two senses of scripture, the tropological and the anagogical. And we're like, what the heck does that mean? Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Tropological means moral. Right, Peter is concerned with the ethical sense of church discipline. John, the anagogical, is focused on the eschaton. He's focusing on the end times, looking towards the eternity that's already present hmm. in Jesus. And you have to hold those two in tension, the moral life, but it cannot be separated from the, uh, the eschatological or the heavenly dimension. If we preach about morals, we're going to come across and we're going to tap into that anti-Roman thing. If I get up there and I preach about contraception and I just hammer people about the morals without pointing it to the Jonine, without saying there's a profound eschatological eternal dimension to these things. If I do that, then I, they're going to reject it. They're going to ta- it's going to tap into that anti-Romanism that's present in the church. Yeah. So I thought that was pretty cool. That's awesome. That's on pages 310 and 311 in uh, the Office of Peter and the Structure of the Church. Ignatius Press. You can find Ignatius Amazon. Press. It's got a horrible cover. It's like pink, but great 70s book. theology, man. Great book. We're at 26 minutes, so i got to hustle here. All right, that's great. Do you have great. any questions before we go here to the Facebook? Uh, I have no questions. I just want you to read an email. Let's get out of here. i got here. no emails, but we're nothing? not going to get out of here. Well, i got a Facebook thing. Now, listen to this. Now, this is interesting. Are we just doing Facebook now? We're doing Facebook. No, just today. Okay. Just tonight. So listen to this. Now... Um, Joe, I am not a good photographed person. Like, I just don't do well with photography. And there's a lot of You got your frowny smile. For those of you who don't know John, whenever John smiles, it looks like a smile, but it's upside down. I try to smile, and I try and look good in photos, but I just look like a total loser. He's the only person I know who can frown and smile at the same time, and it's totally natural. Okay, now listen. With that in mind, this is the most epic photo. Can we have a picture of you doing a frowny smile? No, there's two photos of me on the Facebook page, and they're like the two most epic photos I've ever taken. All right? But. Actually, I think I took. There are not. Uh, maybe you were serving. You were in one of them. One of them is at my sister's wedding. Oh, summer, right. And the other one's on top of a mountain where I said mass. Now, the one on top of the mountain has 28 comments on it right now. Right. This was just posted a couple days ago. But the reason there's 28 comments on it is because a certain guy named Subdeacon Michael Rutan Henningham said this guy. This is a clown mass. Let me read this exactly. 
He said, I'm guessing this is not an Orthodox priest when he looked at the photo. <laughs> the Catholic Church has a clown mass, so mountaintop services are probably just fine. Wow. So, he got taken to the mat by two different Mark Westhoffs. How sweet is that, right? One Mark Westhoff is a student of mine here. And then there's another Mark Westhoff. Are you kidding? Yeah, totally different guy. Who says the mass can be said outdoors. And uh, what Catholic stuff's response to this was... Um, Father John got a dispensation from the bishop because an aspect of his ministry is outdoor work. One of the one of the things I'm trying to promote here is to engage different students and to do different things by taking them to the mountains, to go skiing, to go hiking these different things, and to give them experience at the mass. These are kids who don't go to mass. Right. So I got a dispensation from Bishop Conley for the year to do occasionally do a mass outdoors. So it is permissible. But uh, my good friend, the subdeacon Michael Rutan Henningham, was very upset about this. And so you can read the whole 28. Uh, quite a dialogue but my one request is that we have to respond with love to these things Joe we do so I think everybody Joe Hanine. the so, Petra needs the Joe Hanine. so I have one request from everybody who listens to this podcast please friend request subdeacon Michael Rutan yes Henningham subdeacon Michael Rutan dash H-E-N-I-N-G H-A-M and you don't have to be a jerk but just friend request him <laughs> respond in love Subdeacon Michael Rutan Henningham, may you have an abundance of friendships from Facebook. That's all we wish. That's all we wish. That's great. So you're not going to defend your outdoor mass or anything? Nope. We'll talk about this some other time. Clown mass? Was that a clown mass? Well, I wasn't sure if he was saying I look like a clown or if he was saying that uh, the mass looks like a clown. So. Mm. And for the record, the, the church doesn't do clown masses. The that was kind of And this crazy. is great. Matt Mueller, he said, in the mid-80s, the USCCB published a directive denouncing clown masses. For pretty much the reasons you suspect. I have the volume here and would be happy to look up the date if anyone is dying to know. That's from Matt Mueller. Great little That's great. Great little uh, response on there. So, um, and then Christopher Allen Pohl wrote, With all due respect, Subdeacon, you're talking out of your ass. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for the family. Do we need to bleep that out? Families who are listening. But I, uh, I think it's a good thing uh, to talk about in the future. We'll take it on when we have more time. But cool. for now, just... You know, befriend uh, Subdeacon Michael Rutan Huntingham. That's awesome. That's all I got. I'm going to do that. Go befriend him. I feel like I said like eight words this whole podcast. That's like the old days. Mike used to not get a word in. That's so. right. Well, this one's for you, Father Mike. We'll do, we'll do, uh, we're 30 minutes, so we got to stop. All right, we're stopping. Catholic Stuff Podcast at gmail.com. Friend us on Facebook. That's right. Like us on Twitter. Uh, on Twitter. Talk to you later.